Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. What have you been up to? I started working on a game. Nice. I, uh, this is This is my first Unity... Like, make a new project starting from zero code, or the Unity equivalent of zero code. There's a lot of stuff in that engine. But starting from zero code game. Um, no assets, and basically no, or very little plan. I was starting from, with a plan of just doing prototyping. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of whip something up and see how it works, see if I could get a prototype put together in, you know, a couple weeks. Basically in time for Christmas to be able to show off to some family and get some input. Um, and so with that in mind and the fact that my VR rig is not in any way, shape or form, what could be, uh, happily called portable, (laughs) I decided I would start with something basically just 2D, um, that the lessons that I would learn as far as comfort with unity as a game development environment could be learned from almost any kind of game. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have to be picky. And I just went, let's just go nice and simple. And so what I'm building is a side-scrolling uh, endless runner. Uh, for comparison purposes, think Cannabalt. Mm-hmm. Except in this case, you are being chased by clowns. Not because I have a particular problem with clowns, but I know a lot of people who have problems with clowns. <laughs> so, um, yeah, clowns chasing you. And yeah. Run, jump over stuff, that kind of thing, and stay away from the clowns. Is there going to be like a traumatized mode where you can swap out the clowns for cats or something? Uh, that, that'll be art dependent. Maybe I will have a mode that allows you to go back to prototype graphics. It's like, <laughs> hey, you're being chased by orange spheres. Nice. Scary, huh? Um. So, yeah, so I've got about uh, six hours into the prototype, and it's actually pretty far along. Nice. Um, I'm really rather pleased with what I've got so far. It's not yet playable, but mm-hmm. it's kind of playable. So, basically, what I've got is uh, I've got a, I use a, a, an array of terrain chunks. And I build the terrain randomly by stringing those chunks together. And right now, those chunks are elongated rectangle, little, like, rectangle barrel sitting on top of the thing that you have to jump over. Just string those kind of things together and make a terrain. And it will just kind of run perpetually. I've got one player. The player can jump using the keyboard. And it plays a sound when the player jumps. And the player does not any longer fall through the terrain, which is kind of cool. Nice. And then there's one clown chasing you. And the clown auto jumps before it reaches obstacles. So it's not really AI, but the the clown will, will try and jump over things. If the clown ends up getting knocked off the screen, if it gets caught behind something or whatever and falls too far back, it will respawn partway up and drop back into the terrain. So the clown never really goes away, even if something weird happens. And the clown plays his own little noise when he jumps. 
Um, and then, so I got some collision tracking in there so that the player and the clown can only jump when they're in contact with the ground. Mm-hmm. So you can't like double jump or as I had for a while, jetpack mode, <laughs> which was holding down the jump button and getting a continuous series of physics impulses firing straight up. Nice. Um, and when the player collides with the clown, right now the player color changes. I just, the player turns red like a clown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that allows me to kind of run along and see how stuff goes. Yeah. That um, sounds like a lot for six hours. Uh, yeah. I mean, the graphics are horrible. I recorded the sound effects myself. <laughs> like when the clown jumps, the noise he makes is me saying, boing. That's that's the sound effect. You just heard it. Nice. Um, and so there's a there's a ton of stuff that can be done there, but I'm not really worried about it for prototyping purposes. I want to get better terrain. So right now the terrain is always basically flat, except for periodic small barriers. Mm-hmm. And I want to have like I have two kinds of terrain. There's flat terrain and terrain with a barrier, and I want terrain with a hole in the ground and maybe some upsloping terrain and some downsloping terrain and kind of let them move around a little bit. Um, I think with the downsloping terrain, it may even be dangerous to jump. So if you're running forward and you jump at the top of the hill, you'd fall really, really far down. Mm -hmm. And so I can track that velocity when you contact the ground and hurt you or slow you down for running or for hitting the ground too hard. Um, and I've got some ideas about multiple clowns. I need like a whole gaggle of clowns all running their sound separately. Um, and then some multiplayer stuff, though I'm not really ready to chat about that yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of back and forth because like I said, this is the first like open Unity say new project project. Um, and I, I'm making basically every mistake. It's kind of like the uh, uh, infinite number of monkeys typing on typewriters. Mm-hmm. Um, they will not only eventually type everything that's ever been written in every language on earth but they will eventually do it with every possible type or spelling and grammatical mistake (laughs) um so the biggest issue is always the one that i kind of knew i was going to have trouble with is how exactly to structure the scripts Mm -hmm. um the difference playing wise between players and clowns is not very big there's going to be a mechanism in which a player can get turned into a clown so there's players clowns and player clowns and trying to figure out exactly how to structure that code like some of those things like they're all going to jump Mm -hmm. though I think the clowns are going to jump higher. It might make them a little scarier if they're running along behind you and they can always kind of jump further. So just give them right a a jump component that you can apply to anything Mm -hmm. and then have the, you know, the, the parent class for the clown or the player 
just well i don't know that could be you'd have that in code or you could define that in the inspector and just kind of have a trigger use you know use colliders on obstacles to trigger a jump or, i mean there's a ton mm -hmm. of different ways you could do that yep and that's actually what i've got right now is i make a little invisible rectangle on a piece of terrain mm -hmm. so that the uh, automated clowns know when to jump. So basically it collides with that and it ends up jumping before it gets to the barrier. And so it'll make it really easy for me to make the clowns almost never make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, without having to really write an AI or make it think ahead or anything like that, I just run until you reach the cube and keep going. Yeah. I mean, you could kind of, instead of creating the all the invisible objects, you could just use the colliders on the obstacles themselves and put them all on a layer and have the clown ray cast ahead. And if it detects one within a certain range, then it jumps. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm not sure. I mean, this kind of goes back to your question of like where... Where do you put that detection code? Does that go in jump or does that go on the on the AI? Right. Well, and there's jumping by manually controlled players, mm -hmm. which can jump. And then there's jumping by the thing. So yeah, it, it, by the clowns. So exactly where does that code go? So I've, I was considering like, okay, I've got a manual jump component and kind of an auto jump component that does the collision detection and looking ahead, or in my case, just noticing that you've entered one of the jump squares. Um, and then I've got a separate component that kind of clamps lateral movement. So right now, the ground is moving by underneath the player. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, since I'm using physics, even with a frictionless surface there is a lateral force applied to the player when that ground is going by. Mm -hmm. And so eventually the player just kind of slid off the side. So I've got a separate little component that basically clamps the lateral movement. So anytime a player gets side-by-side -side, uh, X-based velocity, it just damps it down. <laughs> I was uh, thinking more of like an invisible like pull cue that just pokes them from behind. Like, no, 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 keep going. <laughs> well, see, part of the thing is I want them to be able to fall back because if you hit a barrier, that moves you closer to the clowns. Mm -hmm. So what was really cool about clamping this is I stop the velocity, but it doesn't stop other physics objects from physically moving you backwards. Hmm. So when you bump into a barrier, you move left, but you never have left velocity, which is weird, but it's working. So I don't know. <laughs> Um, I had to go through and make it so that my terrain couldn't collide with itself and mm. locking it down so that when the player landed on it, the terrain didn't start rotating, <laughs> um, which was really neat looking. The first time you <laughs> drop a player on it, the player lands on the terrain and the terrain spins and drops the player into the ground. Um, but, then, but then you use your jetpack to climb back up. <laughs> yes. Yes. That worked relatively well. <laughs> Um, so I, I was considering doing all these separate little tiny components for each of these things, but eventually what I'm going to need to do then is potentially be swapping out script components 
on a player while they're playing. Mm. Or just not necessarily swapping out, but disabling, using that disable and enable step. Disable the player steps or components and enable the AI components. That's kind of, even that's kind of a kludgy way of doing it. Yeah. Part of my difficulty is that if a player turns into a clown, that player is now dangerous to other players. So I either need to track all of these collisions and then ignore the ones that I don't care about or actually be able to change the collision ability of a player depending upon their state in the game. Just put them on a different layer. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Change layer. So there's a, then, then you have a player layer and a clown layer and then a player clown layer. And those collisions can be handled separately. Mm-hmm. Right. Change layer. Okay. Where I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to end up now I mean, I've been kind of going back and forth. So three models I can see is one script for player control that has a weird state shift in it and one script for clown control. Or I have a bunch of little components, but I might need to do some weird stuff like the component is attached, but I've told it to not act right now. Mm -hmm. Like temporarily turn off the component either by inactivating it or disabling it or... Um, potentially removing it and adding it, which I don't even know if it's possible. Um, or having one script that basically treats clowns as automated versions of the players. So there's a player clown script that handles all of those state changes and treats them all basically the same. Mm-hmm. And I can tie that to whatever I want. And with a little bit of definition, then the script will know what to do with that particular thing. I'm kind of leaning towards the third option right now. But after our chat, I may take another look at doing the small components. The uh, Another thing to consider, and this would obviously change the gameplay quite a lot, but when a player gets hit by a clown and becomes a clown, consider that just being the end of their involvement their character turns into a, an AI at that point and, you know, they have lost. They've lost their character to the, the zombies or the clowns. So that would be the standard way of doing it. And the trick for me is I want to be able to have multiple players in an endless runner. Mm-hmm. And I don't want a single small mistake to kick somebody out two minutes before the game ends for everybody else. <laughs> and so a brand new player starting the game is always going to die earlier than everybody else, which doesn't give them an opportunity to practice. And so turning them into a bad guy who's basically infinitely survivable, because if they get knocked off the screen, they just respawn and they Mm -hmm. continuously respawn until everybody's dead. Is there a way to turn back into a not clown? Not yet. Like a makeup removal kit. (laughs) <laughs> just a big vat of ponds cold cream or something <laughs> um yeah not yet but that might be something to consider 
Um, I mean, again, I, I don't want to get too crazy with this game because it could be a bottomless pit, but I'm really just using this as a learning thing. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get it to a particular state so that I can play with it, and but I don't want to kind of exceed the grasp of what I'm trying to accomplish with prototyping and with making a quick project. If it turns out that it's a heck of a lot of fun, we'll see what happens. Yeah. None of your side projects ever turn into major business ventures. <laughs> um, for those who are unaware, that's exactly <laughs> what happens to me. Uh, with a fair amount of regularity, which kind of is good and bad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there was my large script components. I named all my scripts really badly. It always bothered me in the, um, in the Ray Wenderlich book, how you'd have like, oh, here's a clown and here's a script called clown. Mm -hmm. And that always felt weird. Like something wasn't named properly. So I went through and started naming my scripts. Like, so I've got a clown and then I've got a clown script and it was called clown script. And it turns out that's a horrible idea. <laughs> um, which goes back to the old quote uh, or joke that there are two hard problems in computer science. Cash invalidation, naming things, and off by one errors. Nice. Um, so one way or another during that refactor, I'm going to end up fixing the names. And the little components were great for not having that naming problem. Because I had a clown and the clown had a jump component or an auto jump component or the clamping lateral movement component. Um, and that worked. That, that, that might end up working. That did take care of the naming problem. Yeah. In my... The game I was working on for Daydream, I had like a I had a bunch of components for small little actions that could happen or behaviors, but I had a player controller class and an AI controller class that would kind of control all of those together. And that was I, I adopted that naming from some book. I'm not sure which one, but just the the different yeah. like the controller means is actually controlling something on the screen versus the manager which like a game manager or a sound manager, which is controlling elements for the scene as a whole. Okay. That kind of made sense to me. Manager versus controller. Okay. Yeah. Player controller. Right. Which worked great, except in some of the Ray Wender like stuff Then we had to end up with game objects that were controllers. Mm -hmm. And my head starts breaking. Yeah. Um, it was also my first time playing with version control for unity. Mm-hmm. So did you turn on the serialize all the assets as text? No. So this is something you should do as soon as possible. Um, <laughs> basically, if you if you don't have that on, it leaves all your assets. And it's not going to affect your prototype too much since you're just using primitives, but it'll leave <clears throat> it'll leave all your three D assets as whatever file format they are in. But if you turn on that serialize I forget exactly what it says it's in the preferences section but basically it, it saves that as XML blobs that you can then diff in your version control system okay. and they're they, you know they upload a lot faster too okay the biggest problem I was getting was all these cache files mm -hmm. just 
dozens and hundreds of them, and I don't think I need to version control those. I need a some Git exclude stuff. Yeah, yeah. I know up. you you use Bitbucket. It might be worth just uh, taking a look at GitHub. Not necessarily to use it, but they've got a, a library of all of the Git ignore files, and there's one for Unity that you can use when you create a new repo. Yeah, you can just go around and find you know what are recommended git ignore paths for unity but yeah there's a ton in there <laughs> like every file has a hidden file along with it with a bunch of metadata for the editor and there's all the caches and build stuff and lighting well you do want lighting but yeah yeah there's a lot and, and all of that stuff like i'm used to working with xcode and all of that stuff goes in separate folders for xcode so it never touches your version control mm-hmm. um so it's just like every, I would make a small change, run the thing, come back, and there were thirty changed files and twelve new ones. Well, I think you do want the metadata files, but you don't want all the caches because the metadata files are what are going to tell. It, I think that's what Unity uses to keep track of everything internal to the solution. I don't think that's stuff you want to get rid of. I I know it is complicated enough that I don't want to try and figure out the answer myself. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna find somebody else's answer and use that until I find something better. So yeah, um, and then just one weird thing is I developed the habit many many years ago. Basically, back when I was in high school, I took a programming class and ended up spending three days chasing down a bug in my code because the instructor thought it would be uh, helpful for me to understand how badly I messed this up. And the bug was entirely because I did not initialize a variable before using it. And while that cost me three days, and it wasn't really three days, it was three 45-minute class periods, Mm -hmm. it absolutely set the pattern where I make sure to initialize my variables before I use them. Mm -hmm. No matter what is happening, when a part of the definition of a variable it gets a value. And the problem is that when I'm making public variables in the script components, I don't want to set initial values in the code. Because if I do it where I define it, it's a number that's sitting in the code that doesn't mean anything. Because Unity only cares about what was set in the inspector. And it doesn't synchronize those two after the first time. So if I say public int health value equals three, the first time I bring that up, three will go into the inspector. But after that, no changes that I make to the code will reflect in the inspector and no changes that I make to the inspector will reflect in the code. And now I've got a three in my code that doesn't mean anything. No, your three is effectively a default value for anything using that script as a component. And then basically you are overwriting that three with an an additional value on the game object. But if you didn't put an object, it would be, didn't put a value, it would be three. If you made it a four, it's just going to be four. It's going to initialize a three and quickly reset the four, I think. Or maybe it even initializes it. Okay. Yeah. And that's something that's messing me up now because I have one player. There aren't two objects using the player script. So the distinction between those two doesn't matter but I, I see what you're saying mm-hmm. 
So get out of the habit of not initializing those. Initial. <laughs> anyway, yeah. learning process. I mean, just look look through the examples in the book. See the ones that they initialized. There's a lot of stuff they initialized directly in line with the declaration. There was other stuff that they initialized in the start method. And then there's other stuff they just left blank. And you populate it with the inspector. And Unity is pretty good about just, hey, you haven't set this. I'm not going to play the app. Right. Like if it's missing something that it definitely needs, it just doesn't even play. And the... uh Little error lines are relatively helpful. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. I. I. Again, this is all just understanding the the design language of a new environment. Yeah. Like how it, does this system work with these things? Yeah, and none of this is don't construe any of what I just said as a best practice because all I do is make the red dots go away. <laughs> <laughs> That is pretty much my only objective at this stage. Like, make it run. I'll deal with it later. I did find working with Visual Studio a faster way to run that compile cycle yeah. is hitting the play button in Visual Studio. We'll do the compilation and we'll tell you whether there are any compile time errors in your code without going back to Unity and hitting play, which takes longer. Nice. It's it's about twice as fast. I can't even use I can't even use Visual Studio right now. No, at least on the PC, I I, I can't log into it. It is not that my <laughs> credentials don't work. It's that the the little pop up window that calls out to their server and gets the code to draw the authenticate the authentication page won't run. It can't reach the server. It times out, so I can't even get to the point where I can enter my developer ID and password, it just sits there for a minute and thinks and then fails eventually and says the server could not be reached. And I have looked at any firewall issues. I've looked at any port issues. I have completely uninstalled Visual Studio and reinstalled it. I have run a repair on it. And at this point, I've just given up and gone to using VS Code for everything on that machine because it's like, I'm not going to spend any more time on this. I, you know, I spent 45 yeah. minutes on a chat support and they had no idea like just repair the settings and that'll fix it like nope it's not on my end your server is not responding so yeah huh it's a weird one it works fine on the mac but uh just the windows version i can't log into it anyway uh, it was building faster for you yes if I hit play in Visual Studio. And basically, if it's successfully played, I would immediately stop it and go over to Unity and hit play. But if I was doing that, oh, I've got a bunch of red dots and I need to make them go away cycle, um, it was faster. And honestly, it was the red dots appear more cleanly in Visual Studio than they do in Unity in its debug console. Yeah. So I had better, more instant feedback with a quicker cycle just hitting play in Visual Studio. And I am sorry that your Visual Studio isn't working. Oh, well. I mean, I kind of like the idea of just having a text editor on the other side and just leaving Unity to do all of the logic. 
Because there are a bunch of errors that could show up that aren't going to be in Visual Studio, like if you forgot to drag a game object in. Yep. Where Unity can take you straight to that object in the scene. Can you double click on that? Yeah. So yeah. And I also, I kind of like the idea of moving any of my web development into VS Code as well. Then I just have like one place that I type code. So that could be interesting. So bouncing around between Visual Studio and Xcode and Atom. Yeah, I sometimes I have trouble with that. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes it helps to have state change. Like my environment is different. It helps get my brain into the other way of thinking about problems. Mm-hmm. Like Swift thinks about problems differently than uh, C Sharp. And Unity thinks about those problems in a different way than uh, Visual Studio. Um, but sometimes it's really obnoxious, particularly with things like key commands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, key commands and any third-party extensions or things like that. That I just get used to using one and then realize, hey, that's, that's not here. There is that. Um... So yeah, I mean that's that's the beginning of my thing. Nice. That's a pretty good start. I'm gonna put some more time in it this week and hopefully have something to that a couple of people can sit down and play for a given value of play sometime next week. And we'll see how it feels. Yeah. If it's any fun or not. Oh, I did have one last thing. That sure. I figured out when I was playing with the terrain is <clears throat> kind of in the same way that there's a, so in the Ray Wenderlich stuff, when we were making our little bobblehead Marine, there's an object in the gun that is specifically designed to be a spot where bullets appear. Mm-hmm. Like put the bullet in here, then fire it forward. Um, I was thinking of doing the same thing with the terrain. Effectively making connection points. Okay. So at the left side of each terrain chunk and the right side of each terrain chunk, I place a little marker. And then I can find the left marker and line it up with the right marker of the previous terrain chunk and know that everything's going to be aligned. Yeah. No matter if it's changing height, like if it's a set of stairs going up or a ramp going down or a slide on a playground or whatever the heck it is, I can always make sure that tab A and slot A will line up by making little invisible things on the graphics effectively that can be aligned and just turn them into nice little locking tinker toy kind of things. Yeah. I know, I'm not sure if you can, you can use the the one on the right to get the position for where it's going to spawn on the left, but I'm not sure that you can position a parent object by a, a child object's transform in the same way, at least cleanly. What you might want to do is see if you can adjust the pivot point of your terrain 
to always be at that left side. So that when you set that transform, it's just going to be everything on that object is going to be pointing out towards the right. You know, the distance. Huh. So you, you, its origin point is basically aligned on that side. And then okay. you use that right box. So you, you basically you have one of those two game objects always added on. And then the origin point on the other side it might be a cleaner way to do it. So when you're spawning the terrain. I think I see what you mean. So effectively the thing, instead of trying to do boxes or whatever, I could literally just have a point on one side. Mm -hmm. you know. So you'd have a game object on, on the right side to be the that child transform object, so like the end point uh -huh. of the terrain. Then you'd reset your pivot point for your terrain object or whatever parent object that is. And that could just be you know, a plane with the mesh renderer turned off. Reset mm -hmm. the pivot point on that to be all the way to the left. And then when you spawn that or move that, um, you just use that transform of the preceding objects, you know, right object, whatever you want to call that, key fob, mm -hmm. and then uh, spawn there, you know, plus or minus whatever transform you want. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. I like it. It does mean that at some point I want to make a, I'm going to need to make a test thing that will you can kind of load up all the chunks and press a button and it will try and string them all together in like every possible combination mm -hmm. <laughs> so that you can make sure that everything still lines up even when you add a new item to the list nice so could be fun rather than waiting for the random number generator to pop around because like i said I, i've got basically two chunks a flat chunk and a chunk with a barrier and there have been a couple of times where I've been playing where I got like 15 flat chunks in a row. Hmm. Um, which probably means I should have bought a lottery ticket. Yeah, I had to do some stuff in Random Arrow to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, round out the randomness. Mm -hmm. if there was, there was, I forget exactly how it was, but I basically was using arrays of permutations and then running a random on that and getting a value back. But then I would exclude that value from the next one. Or maybe if it was like two or three in a row, I forget it. exactly how it was. But I made sure not to get too many repetitive things. Because early in building that app, there were just times where I was like, okay, 14 <laughs> swipe, arrows to the right. Swipe right, swipe right, swipe right, swipe right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So that's been my fun for the week. Joe, what have you been working on? So a couple of weeks ago, I started, you know, sticking my toe into the Unreal Engine waters. And this week, I noped my way right back out of that, back to Unity. <laughs> so uh, we talked about it last week. I wasn't sure if I was going to use Unreal Engine. I was kind of lured there by their AI features, which are way better than Unity's built-in AI features. And... uh it's just too much complexity in Unreal Engine. Um, and particularly, I was just having an issue with VR rendering. And uh, initially, I thought it was just an issue with rendering in the engine. Like when I'm just testing the app, I was like, oh, you know, it won't be like that when I build. But uh, you know, I tried to fix that for a while. I found other people having the same issue on the forums who weren't getting any support. You know, these 
message has been up there for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we're kind of discussing amongst ourselves, like this is the issue here, all the things we've tried, but no one from Unreal Engine chiming in. And then uh, basically just really fuzzy, blurry rendering on anything VR. I tried building the app out as a standalone app and it was having the same issues there. So I'm like, okay, it's gotta be something with the camera or the you know, post-processing volume. There's gotta be something here. This is this is just Unity's VR template project. This is nothing right. special that I had done. And uh digging into it, I found some possible solutions. Um but things that the documentation said work a certain way don't work in the same way. And I'm wondering if this is a an Oculus versus Vive issue, but there was like a, a particular setting in the post-process volume that was supposed to scale the image, which is a questionable name for this already. It was something to do with scaling. But what that did was literally just shrink the screen size that the it was rendering on the VR screen. So, you know, imagine the shape of the VR window with the goggles taken away and then reduce that by 40%, that's no longer VR. You're just looking through some lenses at a little tiny screen. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that this documentation claims that that's not what that does. It actually just makes the image look better. Like, well, why is it called scaling if it just makes the image look better? Like what's going on here? So I just kept finding little inconsistencies like that in the documentation. I'm like, this is, I'm starting to remember some of the issues I was coming up with in the summer and why I decided to look into Unity in the first place. So. And then you, way back in the summer, went, ah, when you found Unity. Yeah. So was that your experience again? Pretty much. Um, you know, Unreal Engine has built-in Steam VR support and they've got all the input mapping done. Like it's a pretty easy implementation. It just looks terrible right now, and it didn't look like this in uh, 4.16. It does look like that in 4.17 and 1.8. Um, so I'm not really sure what's going on, what has changed, but I didn't really have time to troubleshoot it. And it's just for a small project. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. So getting into Unity, I had to immediately figure out if I can do the visual thing that I wanted to do, which was pretty easy to do in the uh, material, I guess, blueprint editor, whatever you want to call it in Unreal Engine. But in Unity, I have to either find shaders that I that do what I want or write shaders that do what I want. And I found some stuff that's pretty close, at least for the prototyping phase. I figured out how to get the effect that I want. Um, and I think I'll combine that with a little bit of custom shader work and then a, a post-processing volume. So I should be able to get the visual effect that I want. It'll be a little bit more work than it would be in Unreal Engine, but it works and it looks really good. And so the other big part was I need to get SteamVR up and running, and that's a bit more work in Unity. You have to download the SteamVR plugin, which is really cool well, not, it's not really a plugin it's just a asset pack it's just a big folder of code and samples um, their documentation is sparse it's mostly like here's how to add a camera to the scene and then add this component to it and then click this button and voila it's a magic camera anyway 
That's it. <laughs> Goodbye now. So, uh, yeah, digging through that a little bit more, there's a uh, folder of interaction stuff, and that has an additional file in there with more, a little bit more details on how to actually implement all the stuff. But basically, you there's two main components you need. You can wrap it all up in a player if you want, um, but you don't necessarily have to. But you can have a a game object, call it player, make that the parent of everything. You need a camera component. You add a, a special Steam camera component to that, and then you push a button on that, and that runs a little plugin script that adds some more game objects and configures and sets them all up. So there's actually like three cameras all, three or four cameras in a little nested tree, you know, separate cameras for the eyes and stuff like that. And it just positions them all right and builds a little prefab for you. And then you need, if you're going to actually do anything with the controllers, you need to create some hands. It's actually kind of cool. You make a, a left-hand game object, attach a hand component to it, make a right hand object, attach a hand component to it. And then they each have a uh, parameter that they're expecting the other hand. So you change the right hand type from left hand to right hand, and you drag in the left hand and the right hand and the right hand and the left hand, like, and now they know about each other. Like, well, that's <laughs> kind of cool. <laughs> Same thing with the, the player component. It's like a little controller class where you can drag in the hands. You can... If you want to target the player or, you know, attach some kind of avatar to it, you can add that to as a child to the the eye cameras. So in my case, I just added a sphere to it for now, so I could see it. And then you drag that in, and then from that point, it was, you know, the the player is pretty much up and running at that point. You, it can. Um, it could start doing stuff based on behaviors of other game objects at that point. So I wanted to add teleportation to the scene. So I added a teleportation game object, added the components, tied it up the way I wanted. And then anything you want to make teleportable, you can do little teleport points. So like in the lab, um, in that first little mountain view scene where you had those little circles that you could only teleport on. Mm-hmm. Those are the points, and you also have teleport areas where you can define pretty much any game object and add this component to it and say, okay, you can teleport here too. Okay. Um, you, I couldn't do that on the actual plane that I'm using for the ground at this point. Like It replaced my material, so I just looked at what they did in the sample scene, and they basically had a object they were using as the ground or the terrain, and right above that they had this other object for the teleportation plane. So it's just, you know, two planes right on top of each other. But that's how you get that neat visual feedback when you're teleporting of like, here's your play area and here's where you are in that and here's where you're going to be in relation to these objects when you get there. Gotcha. So it was all really cool stuff. Before I figured any of this out, I uh, took a look at VR Toolkit. And this is something we talked about briefly on the podcast a couple of months ago. Um, I looked at it and thought it was really cool and then passed on it because their daydream stuff was marked as experimental. But then I decided to take another look at it this week. And I spent about four hours, I think Wednesday, um, 
just going through their documentation. And uh, I think it's just one developer who's done all this with some feedback from the community. And it's basically an abstraction layer between Steam VR and Daydream and Oculus and a couple of others where you can create basically VR objects that can call out any of those. And you can have like one set of inputs. It's actually insanely, it's just insane what this guy has done. Um, really good stuff. And his documentation was really good. He's got tons of YouTube videos. And then I decided that, you know, I should go follow this guy on Twitter. And I went to find him. And the most recent tweet was him basically pulling the plug on the project. <laughs> he didn't outright say he's no longer doing it, but like he was closing down his Patreon. Like he's, I guess he's just having trouble maintaining this as a solo developer. He tried a couple of different ways to raise funds for it. And so, yeah. I'm not sure if it's going away entirely, but that was enough for me to yank it out of my project. I'm like, I will do this the hard way. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So anyway, back to the Steam VR stuff, because that's what I did next. At this point, um, I've got a plane with a visual effect that I want and some cubes acting as tables and some other cubes shrunken down acting like throwable objects and pick up objects and that's pretty much it so there's not a lot there but i feel like i've learned a lot about how steam vr works in unity at this point i'm there's one kind of red flag in the back of my mind which is when you import steam vr into a unity project there is a very clear warning that if you're updating steam vr don't update steam vr delete all of your code and re-import it I'm like that sounds bad <laughs> I really don't want to do that. Like, if I do that with a project closed, that's fine. But is that going to break any of the links that game objects have? I'm just, yeah, I'm not really sure how that looks. So I need to, I guess this is more of a, just a question I need to find out. Like, what do I need to do to prevent those kinds of issues? Do I need to follow certain steps for migration? Should I look at doing my own abstraction layer between all the Steam VR stuff and what I'm using? Um, yeah, I, I don't really know at this point. I wish I had a good answer for you. I yeah. do know that when I've used other people's libraries and I didn't put in an abstraction layer, I almost always ended up regretting it. Yeah. But I don't know what's involved in adding an abstraction layer for something like this Steam stuff. Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering, like, particularly, you know, are prefabs an abstraction layer in this sense? If I'm attaching the hand component to the hand object and making a prefab out of that, and I'm using that hand across, you know, hundred scenes I still only have one prefab to update if something changes with that hand component so there's a little bit mm-hmm. again there as opposed to just referencing that 200 times directly so yeah I don't know I need to figure out what other people are doing I need to find some other VR projects and see how they're they're set up unfortunately all of the you know the educational type of projects they really it's seem to stay away from these issues like this is advanced stuff that you won't need to learn until you're actually developing I'm like well i'm kind of doing that now 
<laughs> so that's where maybe we should bring that up to our friends at uh, Ray Winderlich and say, hey, we need more advanced lessons on how to actually structure code for these projects. Yeah. Hey, here's one that messed me up. And this may be something that you end up wanting to cut. I don't know. Uh, Never. <laughs> so let's say that I've got a game object. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm trying to tell the player something based upon um, something that happened in the game. So the game controller needs to inform the player that something about its state has changed. So I can get from the game object to the player, but the property that I want to change is defined in a script that's attached to the player. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a public property, but how do I talk to it? Because when I try and talk to it, it's seeing the player as a game object, not as a player object. Yeah, so you get the the player's game object's components. You get it like component by name or uh, component by reference. There's a couple different functions. So in the script that you want to make the call to, you you get a reference to the player and you get its components and set the property on that component. That's how I've seen it done okay. so far. So you get the script component, mm -hmm. the, the particular kind of script component. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and if, if it doesn't got... have one, then it nulls, but that property is the property on the script. Because yeah. this is the part that keeps messing me up, is the difference between the the script is a class, but the script is also an object, which is a component, which is effectively an instance of the script on a particular game object. And all of that duality leaves me confused. Yeah, I know what you mean. So I don't I... have... I don't have nearly the experience with object-oriented programming that you do, which I think is helping me in this case. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking about this as scripting first right. and foremost, as you know, FileMaker scripts or writing PHP scripts. It's like how can I get the behavior and without thinking about too much of hierarchies? Yeah, because I end up thinking about as I add these scripts, I end up thinking about these properties as properties of the player, but they're not properties of the player. The properties of the player script on the player. Mm -hmm. So they're properties of the component. And thinking about it that way is weird to me still. Okay, got it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That'll help me with that refactoring thing that I wanted to do. Refactoring a prototype. Yes. <laughs> now, now, understand that we're talking about refactoring a sum total of like two pages of code, and each of those pages is 80% white space. Like, mm -hmm. there's almost no code to this prototype, but I'm going to need to do some refactoring when I start trying to add extra players and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like, right now, the one player in the game looks for the J key to be held down. And that means jump. And the problem is that when I have a second player, they're going to need a different key. And I got to map that stuff. And that's going to require its own refactoring. Yeah. Anyway, so constant refactoring, but all the code is very small. I have written almost no code in this project so far. It's all just been component-based. 
there's only one class that I've written or one component that I've written, and it's not something for the game. It's something because I haven't figured out what checkbox to untick. But when you add teleport teleporting to the scene, um, you know in the in the lab the first time you bring it up, it starts it starts the uh, haptic feedback and uh, you know, vibrating the controllers, and it shows you a little pop up of use the trackpad to teleport. It's doing that every time I run the app. And I couldn't find where to get rid of that, so I just wrote a little class, and I found the method that I could call on the teleport class, and I just set that as false when I run the app. <laughs> so it it shuts it up for now, but I just the the actual components on the all the teleport objects they're just like dozens and dozens of things. Like I don't really want to look at that. I'll just write something else. <laughs> so you kind of uncoded. Yeah. So it starts it and then immediately stops it. Nice. Just kludgy. Anyway, we've got, uh, I think we've talked about quite a lot. We've got one more topic, but before the other topic that could take anywhere between 10 minutes and 10 hours, um, we are going to be on break the next couple of weeks. So let me verify the date. We are going to be back uh, basically... Monday, January 8th. So we'll be recording on the 7th and we'll be back on the 8th with another episode. But we're going to skip the next two weeks for some holiday stuff and some, I guess this is actually not really a holiday time of year for me. This is one of my busier times of the year because all of my clients are in education. And this is a really good, <laughs> good time of year to do some server updates and data migrations. So uh-huh. it's a, I got a lot of work to do this week. I used to have a client that they gave everybody in the company the week off between Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. And that applied to basically everybody except for IT. And IT was in there scrambling because it was a plant that ran on three shifts. Mm-hmm. And the only time they could safely take down the computer system for multiple days to be able to make major revisions was Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything quite at that scale, but I do have two customers just basically evacuating their office for 10 days and two servers to look after one customer with a massive data migration, another customer with a whole bunch of revisions to a database. So yeah, quite a lot of work. And it's just, it's it's kind of, I, I enjoy this every year because it's just like, there are no emails, there are no phone calls for days and days and days. It's just Joe sitting at a desk, just hammering out code, hammering out oh, yeah. scripts. It, it used to be some of the most productive time I had all year. Mm-hmm. So speaking of productive time, <laughs> <laughs> we are so good at the segues. Um, you got Fallout 4 this week, which is, I think, the exact opposite of productive time. Fallout 4 VR. Well, you know, when we're talking about VR game development, all of this is research. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's critical to the process. That we learn from other people's mistakes. Um, Yeah, so Fallout 4 VR for the HTC Vive released. And it's simultaneously very, very cool and really kind of obnoxious. It's a study in contrasts. Um, First off, uh, a little bit of an update on the TP cast. I eventually okay. fixed almost all of my problems with the TP cast by repositioning 
items in the room. And one of the most important things was that wireless receiver box, not the Wi-Fi uh, access point, but the wireless receiver box that plugs into the end of your long Vive cable. It's not only important where that box goes, but actually exactly where it's pointing. <laughs> but it has an orientation. And so what they want you to do is actually, even though there's a, a threaded screw on the bottom of the thing for a tripod end they really want the top of that box pointed towards the player or the top of the player's head hmm. so getting that box high and then pointed down is really 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 critical to getting smooth behavior off of that thing and so with that in mind then the only time i ever have any real tracking issues is when my it, when I'm standing at the opposite corner of my play space, facing away from that box, and then tilt my head down. <laughs> and then my head is between the receiver on top of my head and that box. The only way to fix that is to actually affix this box pointed straight down in the center of the ceiling in my play space. And that's not happening in my living room. At least not anytime soon. Yeah. But repositioning that took care of almost all my problems with the, with the Vive. Nice. Or, I'm sorry, with the TP cast. So I've got really good wireless tracking. The consistency's really good. Um, the battery packs last longer than I'm willing to spend in VR. <laughs> Though they take, they charge very slowly. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to play a lot, you probably ought to pick up a spare battery pack. But as I previously discussed, their commodity battery packs, it's about 30 bucks. So, uh, Fallout 4 VR. I started playing with it basically the night it came out. And it was a car wreck <laughs> that night. Um, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, I had a couple, it wasn't stability problems per se, but there's a lot of bugs. And some of those bugs were on things like the quality of the visual rendering. Hmm. And it was very fuzzy. It was blurry. It was, I mean, that blur problem was causing nausea with people because you couldn't ever quite, it seemed like you couldn't focus your eyes on anything. Mm -hmm. Like you'd look and you'd try harder and you'd try harder and you still just couldn't see the thing that you were looking at. And it was 10 feet in front of you. Um, and so you get these really weird, like, Something closer to you would look really fuzzy and something further away would be really sharp. Hmm. Within 24 to 36 hours, they had some beta patches coming out, which have now been turned into the official version that at least provides options for making that much cleaner. Obnoxiously, you actually have to edit like little configuration text files to adjust those numbers because they're not in the menus. Um, I haven't really ever invested in a Bethesda game in general, or in particular right after release. But as far as I can tell, this is the pattern. That a brand new Bethesda game comes out and it is weird and messed up all over the place. And then this army of flying monkeys from the internet descends upon it and just starts fixing stuff. <laughs> like, I gotta figure out how to do this in my day job. Yeah. 
and just let all of my users fix all the problems with the software. Um, I mean, they're going through and they're doing compatibility testing on every single plugin and like collating their results and organizing so that like all the little add-ins and the DLC and stuff like that, you're going to be able to figure out and add these things in, the ones that work and the ones that don't. I'm sure they're going to fix the ones that don't work. Like these people are weird, but they're totally doing it. As far as I can tell, it's their solutions. They could just get turned into the official software from Bethesda. (laughs) But within 48 hours of release, the graphics were dramatically better. Much more crisp. The biggest problem they've got with that right now is that their crispness made effectively their skybox look too good. Hmm. Which is only a problem at night. Because at night, the stars come out and they look too crisp it, it starts to look like the stars are hovering about 30 feet over your head and just there they're a little obvious um so it's still messy in general if you're not dying to check the game out in vr the pattern suggests that you should wait a couple of weeks or months because mm-hmm. it'll be a better experience then That said, it is easily the most immersive VR experience that I've had based upon its scale. Like, there is an entire bloody world here. People walking around, living their lives. This is not a small experience. This is not a piece of a thing. This is not a really nicely designed level. This is... They built a whole freaking world. And I'm just strolling around looking at it. And now it looks pretty darn good. Um, And the experience of like walking into a neighborhood with all these bombed out buildings and creeping through these things, scavenging stuff, is just amazing. It's creepy and it's foreboding and it's very solitary like at certain points you're basically the only living thing nearby creeping through these buildings and it's amazing Hmm. except for the parts where it is one of the least immersive vr experiences that i've ever had menus Uh, yes menus um this game has a lot of menus So there's a lot of time that you spend in VR with floating text popping up in a palette in front of you. And you're navigating through a menu with really pretty aggressively poorly designed controls. Um, To the point that they actually made the Vive controls worse than what they would have been by default. And I'll give you an example. They've got the little, the Vive controller has this little round, for those of you who don't have a Vive, uh, has this little round touch surface that's really pretty precise. Like it'll track exactly where your finger is on there, and it's both uh, touchable and clickable. So it can track not only where your finger is, but where you clicked on that surface. And it's really nice for doing detail control. If you want to move up 
in a particular direction. Like it says, oh, click up to do this. They don't mean click somewhere in the 90 degree pie wedge that occupies the top portion. They mean for that pie wedge, there is a circle just inside the outside edge of the of the whole touch surface. And that little circle is where you should click in. If you click on the outside edge of the touch surface, like literally it says click up. So you just slide your finger up until you got to the top edge and click there. You're outside where it considers up to be. Hmm. You're too far up. You have to move your finger down a little bit and now you're up. <laughs> or click in the center. They didn't take 30, 40% of the center of this dial and make that the center space. There's a, a contact point that's, oh, I don't know, one centimeter in diameter. That's where the center is. And you have to be basically inside that space to click, and that's a center click. So that if you really look at the way these contact points map out on this inch and a half diameter touch space, you're only using 20% of it. Only 20% of it actually works. The rest of it doesn't register taps on it at all. That's infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to be able to do the thing. The easier I can do the thing, the more it feels like I'm doing the thing. I want to spend as little time as humanly possible in the menus. And if I'm in the menus, I certainly want to spend as little time as humanly possible fighting with the menus. So answer me this. Does the game support controllers besides the Vive controllers? Do you mean like Oculus? No, like your Steam controller or an Xbox controller. I honestly have no idea. I haven't it, tried. If it did, you could just hang your Steam VR, your Steam <laughs> controller around your neck and just use that for the menus. Aside from the fact that I'm really going to want to actuate some of these menus like while in combat... Like, trading between controllers to do that is just another version of suck. Yeah. And the thing is, this isn't a hard problem to solve. I'm pretty sure they can fix it. But it's like somebody took the four buttons on, like, a PS4 controller and and projected them onto the big round touch surface and then only accepted presses where they were actually overlapping with exactly where the buttons are on the PS4. Like they threw away 60% of the touch surface. For as far as I can tell, no apparent reason and certainly no benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and also my personal favorite bug is when you start the game, there's a man and woman, married couple uh, in the bathroom kind of fighting over who gets to use the mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's where you're kind of creating what the characters look like and uh, facial features and, and things like that. In the two brand new games that I have started, it always spawns you just outside that house, but then acts like you're in the bathroom. <laughs> so if you start the game standing in the middle of your play space, you're outside. <laughs> and so your first move needs to be to actually lean in through the wall so you can see the people who are talking to you. Nice. So, again, I think this is going to be an amazing experience. 
in a couple months. Maybe a couple weeks. I'll certainly update people because I'm spending, I mean, it's immersive enough that I'm spending a lot more time in VR than I was previously. Um, basically like the three hours before I go to bed every night is being spent running around in Fallout 4. And by the end of three hours, the TPCast wireless box is carving a dent in my in the top of my head. And it's time to stop. I'm just, I'm just thinking like a new type of baldness appearing. <laughs> I was more thinking about it from the product side. I want to make a TPCast beanie that has extra padding right there. Like, who needs a little extra padding right in the center of the top of their head? Well, TPCast users. Um, But more than almost any other VR experience I've had, at the end of the evening, when I'm in pain and I have to stop playing, I really wish I could play for another 15 or 20 minutes. Nice. Like, running around in these towns is really cool. Seeing what they've created is really cool. And, And the... The, I've tried playing Fallout games before, particularly in the, the FPS style ones. So Fallout 3 and, and those things. And they just, they're not immersive enough for me. I find looking at pictures of these towns, I just, I, I see the developers. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's where the developer put that box. Now when I hop in in VR... I'm looking around the town and going, oh, hey, look, there's a box over there. That's what I want. <laughs> but I'd lost my suspension of disbelief. I'd lost my immersion for uh, standard console games. But in this VR environment, it's fantastic. It actually makes me want to not play non-VR games. Nice. Like, this is, to a certain degree, it showed me the real promise of long-term VR gaming while simultaneously showing me exactly how far it still has to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the issues that you're talking about are the result of this not being a VR game to start. They're slapping Mm -hmm. on VR code on top of this. And if you like the complex menus and the pit boy, if you're starting a brand new VR project and you're, you haven't designed that yet. You're going to make that very different than they did with just a mm-hmm. bunch of menus. Okay, we, we already have the menus. We need to get them in VR. That's a very different problem to yeah. solve. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the you know the next big AAA game that comes out that started in VR. And maybe they make a PC version later on. Or maybe they don't. Yeah, it's going to be a while before I think we see you know huge games like this that are only VR because it's just there's not enough money in it yet but yeah in the time for the time being that that's kind of good because you know we're trying to make stuff yep so yeah so in general i mean if you played fallout 4 and liked fallout 4 probably borrow somebody else's because i don't know that you're going to want to play it in VR for another 400 hours. Um, But if you haven't played Fallout 4 and haven't seen it in VR, it's pretty cool, but maybe wait a couple of weeks or even a couple of months 
to see what kind of stability improvements or general quality of life improvements happen. Yeah. So yeah. I played a couple hours of it last summer, the, uh, the PC version, and that was just enough to remind me that, hey, I've got some RSI issues. I shouldn't be doing PC gaming. <laughs> so I, I definitely want to play this game, but I think I'll wait you know, two or three months for all the bugs to get worked out and then jump in. I don't really need another you know, addiction-style game right now with all the work I'm doing. So, Yeah, I definitely want to check it out. Cool. But there was something, I guess, by your category of unimmersive gaming that I got recently, which was I finally broke down and got a Nintendo Switch. Oh, right. And uh, How's that? It's pretty awesome. It's a really interesting device. It's smaller than I thought. I, I'd, I've never actually seen one, and I just had always imagined it was about the size of like a Amazon Fire tablet, you know, a little bit smaller than an iPad mini, but kind of iPad mini shaped or sized, but it's much mm-hmm. smaller. It's it, The screen on it is only maybe 10% bigger than like the iPhone 7 or the Pixel XL, the iPhone 7 Plus. So it's not a very okay. b- big device. It's got some big bezels and the controllers make it much longer, but... Uh, it's pretty it's pretty awesome um i've got you know five games for it i had to get mario odyssey and the new zelda game right away and i've been picking away at those and then a couple other indie titles the one i've been playing the most is uh cat quest which is a a cat based rpg and uh it's actually just a really well done game it it's very tongue in cheek like they the characters, you know, at one point, one of the characters was like, hey, you're too weak. You should go level up. The best way to level up is to do quests. Like, if I wasn't stuck guarding this tower, I would go do quests too. Like, you know, it's just, <laughs> you can hear the developers. There's you know, one character that's <laughs> like, hey, talk to the developers on Facebook if you have any issues. Like, it's just, it's just a, a lot of fun. It's very, very fast paced. Um, so I doubt I'll get more than a couple of weeks out of it. But uh, like, I'm already... You know, out of the 99 levels, I'm already at like level 40 or so. Oh, wow. Of character development. But, you know, it's fun. It's goofy. The uh, the controllers are, the, I think, the coolest thing. So I like to play games. The PS4 controller is not necessarily the best thing for me. The Xbox controller, I think, is the most ergonomic. But I haven't got that working on the PlayStation. The Switch controllers. There's not inherently better, but it can be played in three different modes. So you can kind of dock the little controllers onto the side of the tablet and play that way. So it's just a you know a tablet with handles essentially. Um, that's its most portable way. You can also slide the controllers off, and they've got some little grips you can slide on, and you can treat them like little motion controllers. They're not tracking in space or anything in the game, but they're reacting to gestures and certain games mm-hmm. map out inputs like that. So the Mario Odyssey has some really cool stuff that you can just do different gestures and flicks and stuff like that. And then uh, the other mode is they, they dock into a little controller size thing that's you know roughly the size of a PS4 controller, maybe a little bit smaller. And then you can play that way. So there's th- these three different modes 
And I think just that aspect is, uh, that's just a really cool way of doing it because if my hand starts to hurt one way, I can just switch to a different control scheme. Um, so it's not very taxing. So then, break uh, your hands in all possible ways. Not really. I think my issues with I, RSI I are always just doing one thing too much. So the right. more different things I do, the better. Um, in terms of games, like playing Mario Odyssey, like Nintendo just knows how to make fun. Yeah. They, they really do. It's just an awesome game. There's so much to explore. I'm barely into it at all, but it's just like everything about it is pretty much delightful. And uh, yeah, I'm going to spend a lot of time in that game. The Zelda game, I already got myself somewhere that I shouldn't be with the strength that I am. I'm like, okay, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some really neat stuff. Well, then you definitely don't need Fallout 4 VR. No. That's our show for the week. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll be on break until January 8th. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.